Part forty nine of the Manchester Man by Mrs. G. Linnaeus Banks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Final Appendix Historical The lapse of years since this novel was penned, the sweeping demolition of the town it describes, and the birth of generations who cannot recall it, not only furnish reasons for the issue of this pictorial edition but for the author to add somewhat to her former communications with her readers, before she, too, is swept away, and further annotation from her pen is impossible. The River Irk and Hunt's Bank Bridge Chapters 1 and 13 I have said that only an antiquary, or a very old inhabitant, could recall Manchester as it was at the close of the last century, and time has since removed most of the old people who, leaning over the stout wooden railing along the embanked riverside, had stood to watch the Irk chafe its swift waters against the rocky base of grammar school and college, or rush along in flood under the arch of Huntsbank Bridge, to join the brimming Irwell. For this must have been before the Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway shut it out of sight and memory. And I question if any but myself can remember to have seen the ancient cannonball embedded in the rock below the college for that may also have been covered up and buried. It is more than sixty years since my brother pointed it out to me as a memorial of the siege. The maps introduced into the volume will show at least where the river ran, and where Simon had his garden plot on Walker's Croft above the embankment, along with others. Chapter 3 The Seven Stars Inn is still in existence. It is said to be the most ancient inn in Lancashire. At all events, it has been a licensed house since the reign of Edward III, the first license having been granted A.D. 1356. Being a county license, the record was preserved in the record office Lancaster Castle, but along with other documents relating to the Duchy of Lancaster has since been removed to London. There is a tradition that the workmen engaged in building the parish church, afterwards the collegiate church, and now the cathedral, were paid a penny a day, or a peck of meal, and got their dinners at the Seven Stars Inn. Sixty or more years ago it was a noted resort for country carriers. Seven Stars Yard in the rear, through which there was a convenient thoroughfare, never being without its complement of their covered carts and wagons from outlying or distant places. The Boar's Head at Hyde's Cross was another rendezvous of the kind, chiefly affected by the Cheshire carriers, who brought occasional passengers as well as baskets, boxes and parcels, and never asked inconvenient questions in the interest of the post office. Chapters 4, 5. The Sun Inn. I am not aware of any ancient record of this inn, either as a licensed house or a private abode. It was brought into prominence when Mr. William Earnshaw, a native of Colne, one of my father's old friends, and the father of one of my pupils, migrated from Cheetham to become the landlord, drew round him the literary men of the town, and inscribed the legend on the front, Poet's Corner. This was in the early forties, when John Critchley Prince was in the ascendance and lived over the way. A glimpse of the inn may be seen through the college gateway initial, and again, in the larger view of the old grammar school, comes a shoulder of antiquarian interest, where a narrow strip of window marks the sometime Poet's Fratorium. The leather breeches maker next door, whose name I have forgotten, 
was one of the old inhabitants when I was young. A railed area and a descent into one of the cellar dwellings common at the time necessitated an ascent of three or four steps to what was evidently the shop and workshop both. When buckskin breeches were in vogue, he had done a flourishing trade there, but in my time it was only kept alive by a few old customers, and those chiefly for making and cleaning buckskin gloves and braces. Chapter 5. The Bridgewater Hotel. This hotel must have disappeared in the general onslaught on Market Street Lane, but I believe that the curious may still discover remains of the old stabling of Bridgewater Yard in a little back street leading out of High Street. Chapter 5. Colonel Hanson was extremely popular with the working people, who dubbed him the Weaver's Friend. His politics landed him in prison. On his release, a gold cup, purchased by the United Pence of 32,000 weavers, was presented to him at his residence, Strangeways Hall. His tenancy followed that of John Varley, my father's uncle, to one of whose daughters he was engaged. For some private reason, the match was abruptly broken off, whether on account of a duel he fought, or for prudential reasons, was not known. Chapters 6 and 21. Manchester Infirmary. This valuable institution has undergone many changes since it was originally founded by Mr. Joseph Bancroft and Mr. Charles White, the eminent and eccentric surgeon of King Street. At that time, an ordinary dwelling-house in Garden Street, Salford, was obliged to suffice for the sick poor. It was but the experiment of two Samaritans. But so forcibly did it justify its existence in its utter inadequacy to meet the pressing claims upon it, that outer benevolence was stimulated. Friends rallied round the first promoters, donations were ready, and Sir Oswald Mosley, Lord of the Manor, executed a conveyance of the waste land around, and including the old daub hole as a site for a more commodious building. Of this new infirmary, Mr. Miles Brown laid the first stone, and it was opened for patients in 1755 at a cost of £4,000. Mr. James Massey being the first president. The daub hole, clay pit, where the ancient ducking-stool had served to cool the hot blood of cantankerous scolds, became a long pond, railed in along with a still wider area devoted to shrubs and healing herbs. Ten years later, a lunatic asylum rose in line with the infirmary, though structurally apart. Such they remained for many years, the broad gravelled walk in front, with wide stretches of emerald grass on either hand, becoming the recognised promenade for Manchester merchants and tradesmen's families after divine service on Sunday mornings, albeit it was not called church parade. I may here mention that in 1766, simultaneous sermons, inaugurated by Warden Peplow, were preached in all the Manchester churches in aid of this great institution realising about £164, thus creating a precedent for Hospital Sunday, a century in advance of the modern movement. It was not until 1781 that public baths were erected within the infirmary area, close to the expansive triple gates confronting the gardens, and turning a high blank wall to that end of George Street. Such was the infirmary as it was connected with my narrative, and as it existed in 1820, and as Mr. Fitton has depicted. 
I personally remember the lighting up of the clock with gas in 1825, and various later alterations in the building, such as the filling in of the gap between the asylum and the infirmary proper, then the fronting of the whole with stone, when a noble pillared portico was added to the façade, having an imposing ascent of several steps to the vestibule door. Within this vestibule was kept an old sedan chair, which I recollect once seeing in use, and only once. And such too was the infirmary, through successive decades, until the sluggish pond, which in 1851 welcomed the visit of Queen Victoria with the spray from three upspringing fountains, was voted a nuisance, was dried up, as had been the chaley beat springs of the superseded baths, and its site was converted into a flagged esplanade, adorned with statues and supplied with seats for the weary. But it is no longer the infirmary of my childhood, or of my story, and no wilful Augusta could within its area find the convenient shrubbery in which to keep clandestine appoint in which to keep clandestine appointments with any darling Lawrence. And now this is to be rebuilt. Chapters eight to twelve Chetham's Hospital or College the word hospital has for many years been associated with institutions for the reception and treatment of the sick or disabled, but when the benevolent merchant Humphrey Chetham made his will and suggested the purchase of this stronghold on the Irk, the site of the Roman Praetorium, as a home for poor and parentless boys, the word retained its monastic meaning of a guest-house or hospitium for the shelter and entertainment of way-worn or belated travellers irrespective of rank or condition, hence its legal application to this foundation. Yet for two previous centuries the building had been a college attached to Christ Church, the pious priest-lord, Thomas de la War, having surrendered his baronial hall for the reception of the warden and fellows, when he obtained royal permission to collegiate the church, then newly built of stone, to replace an earlier structure of wood. The name of college stuck to the building, and very properly so, considering its twofold dedication to learned and pious uses, whether as a home and school for the training of deserving boys, or as the repository of Chetham's unique library of rare and priceless books, open and free to the students of the world. It was thus the boys on Humphrey Chetham's foundation became known as college boys, and long may they be so designated, albeit Owens College, at the Charlton end of the town, now claims to be the Manchester College per se, having university rank. Since the bygone days when Dr. Stone was librarian, and the present writer admitted Jabez Clegg to the privileges of the college, many changes and alterations have taken place in and around the Citadel on the Rock. These call for notice in this historical appendix, not only for the preservation of memorials swept away within the past half-century, but for the behoof of readers of the present generation. The first marked innovation began in 1844-5 with the Manchester and Leeds Railway Company, now the Lancashire and Yorkshire, when the directors, who had already made havoc of Walker's Croft and the Cholera Burial Ground, lacking space for the extension of offices, arched over the Irk from Hunt's Bank all along beneath the college, which they would fain have absorbed likewise had it been possible. Prior to that intrusion, the college had possessed several outlets to the river, at one time well stocked with fish. There were the dairy steps, the steps to the old pump court, 
others to the boat-house, and a long flight which must still be visible clinging to the outer wall, and only terminating at the upper level of what is now known as the governor's garden. This, I am informed by the present courteous governor, Mr. Walter T. Brown, was formerly called the Scurvy Garden. He says, The reason it obtained this name is because in the early days of the school, the boys afflicted with zymotic diseases were confined here apart like the lepers of old. They also slept apart in the three small cells adjoining, now used for other purposes. All these steps rose from a narrow platform of rock slightly raised above the river at low water, and more or less covered in stormy or showery weather. It is just thirty years ago, 1866, since I visited the college for the purposes of this story, and after a brief chat with my old friend Mr. James Crossley, the bibliographer, and Mr. Thomas Jones, the librarian, Mr. Richard Hamby, the gentle and genial house-governor, conducted me over the building, from cellarage to dormitory. I then discovered that change, under the name of progress, had begun its work internally. To provide more room for the library, the old museum had been displaced, and the bulk, or the rubbish, according to Mr. John Plant, curator, transferred to the Peel Park Museum, where its significance was lost. The dingy curios, there of no account, were part of the antiquity of the college, telling of a time before steam brought the ends of the world into contact, when an alligator or porpoise was a curiosity to be prized and exhibited, and science had not made the human skeleton familiar to the young. To me it seemed as if a leaf had been violently rent from the archives of the hospital and of my memory. How often had I in my childhood followed with open ears and eyes alert some blue-coat Cicerone as he ran over, like a parrot's roll, the list of curios ranged on shelves protected by a network of brass wire, or mounted high on walls or over doorways, when I had wished he would not gabble on so fast, but leave time for closer inspection. There was generally another guide with a separate party close on his heels, and no doubt this frequent iteration would be annoying to studious readers who had only the holiday time for research, for one of those committed his irritation to print, and so preserved an inventory of an earlier date than that of Mr. John Rylance, himself an old boy, or that the Reverend John Henners included in his Memoir of Richard Hamby. In producing this catalogue, for which I am indebted to another old boy, Mr. John Lee of Sale. I am omitting a splenetic prelude little to the purpose, and beg leave to say it is otherwise precisely given as I have heard and can recall. Tim Bobbin's choice oratorical catalogue of the rare and valuable curiosities in the College Library, Manchester, printed by J. Pratt, Bridge Street, 1827. Enter, boy, and boobies. Boy, that's the skeleton of a man, that's a globe, that's a telescope, that's a snake, over the snake's back two watch-bills, those are four ancient swords, that with a white haft once belonged to General Wolfe, that's the whip that the snake was kilt with, that topmost a crocodile, that bottommost an alligator, that boot once belonged to Queen Elizabeth, that's an Indian pouch, that's an ancient stiletto, that's part of Humphrey Chetham's armour. That with a white face is a monkey. Sideth monkey's a green lizard. Sideth lizard's a porpoise's skull. Under the porpoise's skull, an alligator. Under the alligator's a turtle. 
Those bows and arrows belong to the Indians. That's a porpoise's head. Those are various kinds of adders, worms, snakes, fishes, and venomous creatures. Those are a pair of eagle's claws. That arrow belonged to one of the legions that fought under the Duke of Richmond at the Battle of Bosworth Field in the year 1485, when King Richard III, King of England, was slain. Those arrows once belonged to Robin Hood. That's a sea hen. That's a seaweed. That's a unicorn fish. That's part of an Indian skull. That's the top part of it. That's part of Oliver Cromwell's stone tankard. Those balls are took out of a cow. That's part of a lodestone. Those balls are took out of a cow. That's part of a lodestone. Those two pieces of wood was almanacs before printing was found out. That's a hairy man. Under the hairy man's a speaking trumpet. Sideth speaking trumpet's Oliver Cromwell's sword. That's a leathern bag. Sideth leather bags, two coconut shells. Sideth porpoises' skulls, a pumpkin. Sideth pumpkins, an American cat. Overth pumpkins, a turtle. Sideth turtles, a seaweed. That top one's a crocodile. Under the crocodile's an alligator. Under the alligator's a woman's clog that was split by a thunderbolt. And who wasn't hurt? Sideth crocodile's tail's a sea hen. Sideth sea hen's a Laplander's snowshoe. That in a box is the skeleton of a nightingale. That table has as many pieces in it as the days in the year. This clock only strikes once a year. That's the cock that crows when it smells roast beef. And that's the way out. I may add, as does the spurious Tim Bobbin, that the boy, who never asked, but waited, here expected a trifle for his services, and well deserved it. No pictures then disputed precedence with that of the founder above the fireplace, at least on that side of the room, that of Humphrey Chetham's brother above the doorway, and those of Bradford the martyr and Hugh Oldham by its side, were unseen by the boobies, who stood with awe upon the threshold, and they had no place in the vocal category. Consequently, the pictures included in the catalogues of Mr. Rylance and Mr. Hen, along with other articles they include, belong to a period beyond the range of the Manchester man. Yet in justice to myself and those who may expect to find the college exactly as I portrayed it, I must add that between my explorations under the guidance of Mr. Hamby and my last visit, when a Mr. Tinkler did the honours, years had slipped by, and many had been the changes, even structurally. My new guide omitted to say that the improvements he vaunted had been made when, in 1882-4, Oliver Hayward, Esquire, one of the Fifees, had munificently furnished funds for the repair of the entire building. But he exultingly pointed to the discovery of a large recess and a fine raftered ceiling in the refectory, previously concealed under lath and plaster. I was shown how the removal of the ancient and effete museum had made the library more commodious, how fresh portraits had been admitted to the companionship of the founder in the renovated reading room, and where a secret door had been discovered in the oak panelling by a boy, a door leading by a private staircase to the minstrel's gallery and to the cloisters. I admitted the undoubted improvements, but I felt as if old memories had been disturbed. The cellarage I did not ask to see, the changes there have only recently been revealed to me, but when Mr. Tinkler led me forth into the playground to inspect a brand new schoolroom, and I beheld a troop of boys in common suits of corduroy, the shock overpowered me. 
I waxed indignant, and if I did not say all I thought of the change, I certainly asked how the boys came to be clad otherwise than in the reputable long blue coat prescribed by Humphrey Chetham's will, the mercantile style of his period. Some shuffling apology of insufficient funds was made, but I left the old building full of ire at the paltry disregard of the founder's will and his motto, Quod tuum tene. I have, however, lately been much gratified by hearing from Mr. W. T. Brown that measures were on foot for the restoration of the time-honoured uniform, and that probably before these lines are in print, the college yard may again be traversed by blue-coat boys, as proud of their attire as are those of the Christ Church School, London. And respecting the costume, let me say that in this edition I have given the boys yellow stockings, at the instance of an individual much my elder, and I believe an old boy. Those of the Christchurch boys are yellow, but Baines, in his History and Gazetteer, date 1825, describes Chetham's as blue, and dark blue they were as I remembered and described them originally, probably the result of an innovation prior to the historian's date. Chapter 29. Ardwick Green Pond. Like the infirmary pond, this has ceased to be a memory to any but persons of middle age. It has been so long filled up, the green being now an acknowledged public recreation ground. It was always so, more or less, within my recollection, and many years before that. The pond, shaped something like the London Serpentine, was surrounded by a broad border of grassy turf, here and there planted with trees and bushes. With the exception of a small paved space at the upper end, in form like a horseshoe, bounded by a stone coping, and which was set apart for the watering of horses and cattle, the whole green was surrounded by stout wooden posts, connected by thick bars of wrought iron, the entire enclosure being traditionally reputed to measure a mile round. Schoolboys and girls who had holidays made it a recreation ground. There were no holidays then for the children of the poor, and the horizontal bars from frequent use by amateur gymnasts became warped and distorted. The bars gave place to chains, which served quite as well to swing upon. At Whitsuntide, and other grand processional celebrations, the Sunday school children were ranged within this enclosure to sing hymns and the national anthem, and the girls being mostly dressed in white, with white caps and tippets, it was a very pretty and interesting sight. In winter, when frost bound the lakelet, it was taken possession of by boys and men as an established skating ground, and nobody said them nay, so that it was a recognised recreation ground before the green was formally made over to the corporation and robbed of its chief attraction. The pond could scarcely have been stagnant if it was a true brooklet ran through its length and kept it fresh. In the old maps it is styled a canal. Certainly soot might accumulate on its surface in these later days, but sixty years ago the young angler might find more than Jack Sharps there, for horse mussels were abundant, and at least one old Lancashire conchologist added to his collection from its depths, since specimens of Planorbis, Sphirium, and Limni, collected by the hand now dead, have been added to my collection by a kind Manchester scientific friend, as historical relics of a pond which has also ceased to exist. The pond was not altogether without its tragedy, for when I was about nine years old, a fine young woman named Eliza 
summarily dismissed from her situation close by, drowned herself by bending over the coping at the watering-place. She had formerly been my baby sister's nurse. Chapters 5, 6, 12, etc. Oldham Street This thoroughfare, so closely connected with the incidents of this story and the history of the town, had no existence until 1772, when the highway through Newton to Oldham was selected by members of the Newton family and others for the erection of good Georgian houses of red brick, suited to the requirements of merchants and private gentlemen. They were houses of which Gower Street, London, may stand as a type, having similar pillared doorways and fanlights, similar steps of broad flags, and in most cases, areas railed in to protect the steps descending to the basement kitchens. Such they were when the main events recorded in these pages passed into history. In a very few years, shops began to invade the residential street. Then the areas and the basements became tenanted by working craftsmen who made there the goods they had for sale, and executed repairs, in some cases living there entirely. Otherwise they served as workshops or storehouses for the grounds-floor tradesmen, whose goods demanded space. At the corner of Dale Street was a many-pinnacled Wesleyan chapel, celebrated for its connection with John Wesley, who had preached therein, notably at its opening. Now the chapel has gone the way of private abodes, projecting steps and areas, and from end to end the busy thoroughfare has been given up to enterprising shopkeepers, who have remodelled and extended frontages, so that the Oldham Street in which the Manchester Man is published is not to be recognised as that in which the writer was born in 1821. Chapters 6 and 20. New Cross. This cross, which may be found marked on the map for 1807 at the junction of the four wide thoroughfares, Oldham Street, Ancoats Lane, Newton Lane, now Oldham Road, and Swan Street, then New Cross Street, was the centre around which clustered an open-air market and shambles in the early years of this century. It was known as New Cross Market, and long years after the wholesale fruit and vegetable markets had been removed for centralisation to the wide area of Smithfield and Shude Hill, and the butchers removed to newly built shambles lying between Swan Street and Smithfield, where dealers in pottery, tinware, baskets, toys and cast-off clothes had been drawn as into a focus. The name remained, though the cross had been taken down in 1821, a New Cross Market, it continued to be called for years afterwards, to my knowledge, whatever it might be officially. Even the stallkeepers were loath to quit their old ground, and edged into Swan Street, until the shopkeepers rose against their intrusion as a nuisance, and they were peremptorily moved on. What became of the cross, or what was its architectural appearance, I could never ascertain, though I asked many questions about it, when I was young and its removal recent and unless it was in a ruinous condition, I think it might have been allowed to remain, since it marked a place of sepulture, for there, twenty years later, were unearthed the skeletons of suicides a cruel law had denied more sacred ground. However, if Lawrence's plan may be trusted, it was more a monument than a cross, and consisted of an elongated cone or spire on a square fluted pedestal, having a low step or two round the base, and a light fane surmounting the spire. It has, anyway, left its name on the locality. Chapters 1 and 13 
the Irk and its bridges. Of these, the one at Hunt's Bank, where the Irk debouches into the Irwell, though under cover, must be the most ancient, since here by the Praetorium was the Roman road to Ribchester, and a bridge becomes a foregone conclusion, though it might not be the precise one Mr. Fitton has depicted as coeval with college and old houses of correction, and which we find marked on maps as Irk Bridge or Hunt's Bank Bridge indiscriminately. Farther up the river, beyond the grammar school, and a short row of dwelling-houses, the steep descent of a narrow alley under the frowning walls of the town mill, landed your footsteps on a strong wooden erection, having an earthen floor, and known as Millbrow Bridge. It was the common footway from Millgate to Walker's Croft, and overlooked the first mill-dam on the earth. Still higher up the stream, and closed in by the Millgate line of houses, was the very ancient pile denominated Tanner's Bridge, which had been swept away long ere the houses opposite to Miller's Lane were demolished to make way in 1814 for the wide arch of Ducie Bridge, and the new highway through Cheetham to the north. Prior to this, the only route had been through narrow Long Millgate, to an abrupt turn and steep descent just by Pinmill Brow to Scotland Bridge, the last of the Irk Bridges within our scope and thence up the twice-lowered acclivity of Red Bank, toilsome to the pedestrian, and for vehicular traffic intolerable. Travellers to Scotland no longer use the bridge, or the road cut through the Red Sandy Hill, and the obvious nomenclature of the bridge itself has become a puzzle for the curious. CHAPTER Sixteen, SIMON'S GARDEN PLOT a glance at the map for 1807 will show where a number of such plots were grouped together. It was then quite a practice for a tradesman confined all the week to shop or warehouse, to have a garden plot and summer house outside the town, where he and his family might take their ease on Sunday afternoons in summer time. It must be remembered that business hours were long, there were no weekly half-holidays for employers or employed, while suburban residences were few and far between, and tenanted by the well-to-do. No wonder, then, that tradespeople and artisans betook themselves to the green fields on Sunday afternoons, or that tea-gardens came into existence, while humbler caterers cultivated garden plots, as did Simon Clegg, and purveyed posies and summer fruits. Chapters 18 and 46 The New Bailey Until 1790, the only jail in Manchester was the House of Correction on Hunt's Bank, under the very shadow of the college. But this, notwithstanding rebuilding, became so utterly inadequate for the growing needs of the town, partly owing to the blood-money system for the manufacture of criminals, that after an Act of Parliament had been obtained, the new Bailey prison was erected on the Salford side of the Irwell, with its frontage to the river. Its appearance on completion may be seen in the initial to Chapter 46. But though it was opened in 1790 for the admission of prisoners, many years elapsed before its completion. Its nucleus was a central building constructed on John Howard's plan, and shaped so as to permit a warder at the centre to have the whole four wards or alleys within his view, a system of signalling by tablet allowing the prisoners to communicate with the jailer. It was three storeys high, but manifestly too small for the requirements of Manchester and Salford, in those unsettled times, although offenders beyond magisterial jurisdiction were carted off to Lancaster for trial. However, 
a wider area had to be walled in, and gradually other accommodation provided under the shadow of the newly extended southern wall, and in time, even before the passing of the Prisons Act in 1823, workshops were set up along the southeastern wall, where the prisoners were usefully employed in batting, tailoring for prison wear, shoe, mat, rug or basket making, instead of herding together like cattle, as had been the case in too many common jails. And I have little doubt the horrors and abuses in Ilchester jail, brought to light by Henry Hunt's demand for a commission to inquire into its condition during his incarceration there as a political offender, had no little influence on the amendment of the law. At all events, the treadmill, invented in 1817, was not set up in the New Bailey prison until 1824, and the first person sent to it was a woman servant who had robbed my parents very extensively. This treadmill ground dye woods for manufacturers, and was therefore made to pay its expenses. I saw it in use when, with this novel in contemplation, and armed with a sufficient order, I was shown over the prison, which I had previously contemplated only from its exterior. But as the whole edifice has long been raised to the ground, a few words anent that exterior may not be out of place. I need not tell middle-aged people that its frontage and entrance were in Stanley Street, high up above the Irwell, which it frowned down upon. Strong iron gates gave access to a space a few yards wide, bounded by as strong an iron gate or grating. It was within this narrow space the bodies recovered after the wreck of the Emma were laid out for identification. As at Newgate, the Old Bailey, the symbolic fetters or leg irons were suspended above the entrance, and conveyed no idle threat when the century was in its teens. The governor's house, slightly recessed beyond this entrance, was situated above the ground floor and magisterial offices, and was approached by a double flight of steps with a very needful handrail. It may perhaps be remembered that the square outer walls of the prison were exceedingly high and massive, with bastions at the four corners, pierced with loopholes for musketry, as were the upper walls. It was not thus originally. Twice within my own recollection had these walls been raised and strengthened. In the first instance, above the original wall of rustic masonry, surmounted by a chevaux de frise, rose a course of brickwork to a higher level to which the revolving chevaux de frise was transferred as an additional security. Rioting and tumult had apparently rendered the precaution necessary. Later riots, turnouts, incendiary fires and other acts of violence still more menacing caused the authorities again to increase the elevation of the walls with brickwork, adding the loopholes and bastions to awe the threatening multitude. I was not of an age to specialise these separate riots, having unfortunately known so many, but I could not pass the new bailey to visit my grandfather Varley without observing these changes and inquiring the reason. Mosley Street There were no warehouses in this street during the period covered by this narrative. If other manufacturers there were, they had their business premises in the rear, with entrances in the narrow back streets, as had my Ashton prototype. It was essentially a residential quarter for private families and physicians of repute. It was, moreover, studded with public buildings. The Royal Hotel occupied the corner at the Piccadilly end, with an outlook across the infirmary pond. 
A few yards beyond rose an unobtrusive Unitarian chapel, having a very small burial ground wedged in between the chapel and other premises. I remember the outcry made against the desecration of this cramped-up place of sepulture, when the site of the chapel was required for a warehouse, an outcry which only subsided when the purchasers agreed to arch over the place of the dead and build above the arched foundation. Higher up, cornering Charlotte Street, the plain, not to say ugly, assembly rooms gave to Mosley Street something of an aristocratic status, confronted as it was with the pillared façade of the portico. A large and well-attended independent chapel occupied the third corner of Charlotte Street, beyond the assembly rooms. Higher up still, abutting on Princess Street, was an exclusive Academy for Young Gentlemen, and close beyond that, like two prim and antiquated spinsters retiring from the obtrusive crush of modern society, two quaint and neat two-storey houses stood back, as it were, in a recess, railed in behind a flagged forecourt, as clean as the windows and bright brass knockers. But the second decade of the century had worn itself out before St. Peter's solitary church, guiltless of dome or spire or steeple, looked down an unbroken vista of brick and stone. It stood, a thing apart, for many years after the fugitives from Peterloo rushed past, pursued by horsemen with flashing sabres. Yet the church had been completed, and commerce had taken full possession of Mosley Street, long ere a line of the Manchester man was penned, and tramcars have now usurped the place where private carriages rolled in state on great occasions. Chapters 19 and 20. Peterloo. By one of time's strange ironies, the Free Trade Hall now occupies a portion of the extensive plot of waste ground known in 1819 as St. Peter's Fields, from its proximity to St. Peter's Church, and which in that year obtained unenviable notoriety as Peterloo Fields. At that date, Waterloo was so recent an event that the mental association of the two names was a natural sequence when the atrocious attack of armed cavalry on a defenceless multitude of men, women and children converted the ground into another Akeldama. By whomsoever originated, the woeful catastrophe was by common consent spoken of as the Peterloo Massacre, the Battle of Peterloo, and the designations passing from fathers to sons have so come down to us. An objection has been raised to my introduction of artillery as untrue to history. I described what my near relations saw and knew. Further, it is stated by Edward Baines, who I believe was one of the reporters present. The military, consisting of the Manchester and Cheshire Yeomanry Cavalry, the 15th Hussars, a detachment of the 83rd Regiment of Foot, and some pieces of Royal Artillery, were all in readiness, but they were not then seen by the persons forming the meeting. And again, the panic-struck reformers, with all the banners and emblems, fled in all directions, while some of those at a distance threw stones and brickbats at the yeomanry, who galloped over the field in triumph, chasing the fugitives. The Cheshire Yeomanry and the 15th Hussars, who had now reached the ground, followed by two pieces of flying artillery, assisted to clear the field, etc. Wheeler, in his History of Manchester, also says, Thanks were sent officially to persons who had rendered active service in maintaining order, 
which comprised the Manchester and Cheshire Yeomanry, the 15th Hussars, detachments of the 88th and the 31st Foot, with pieces of artillery, etc. The statement of Mr. Archibald Prentice was, near to the field, ready the moment their services were required, were six troops of the 15th Hussars, a troop of horse cavalry, with two guns, etc. This combined testimony, I think, dispels all doubt of my accuracy. And these historians testify something more, namely that the onslaught was made before the riot act was read, and that solely to enable Nadine to execute his warrant for the arrest of the speakers, his force of two hundred constables being, according to his representations, insufficient to support him. The magistrate who read the riot act was, I believe, Parson Ray, as he was called in my time. The memory of this inhuman outrage was not soon permitted to die out of the Manchester mind, for so surely as Peter Luday came round, it was commemorated by a long procession of working men, headed by an immense banner on which the scene of the massacre was represented with startling effect, if not with consummate art. Year after year I beheld the long procession and its ponderous banner, until I had outgrown my childhood and any likelihood of forgetfulness. But when these annual processions were abandoned, or what became of the scenic banner, I have no means of ascertaining. For a long while I have been under the impression that Mr. Henry Waite, of Bridge Street, who went over to the majority six and twenty years back, was the painter as well as the producer of the banner, and I fear in my endeavours to assure myself of the fact, and establish the identity of the Peterloo picture, there being a second in existence, that I have been troublesome to his descendants, both of the first and second generation, who have courteously endeavoured to recover the missing link for me. Mr. Waite made the banner that I knew, whosoever painted it, and I have come to the conclusion, taxing my own memory, that the crude engraving bearing the signature of Jas Rowe, a radical of the radicals, and disseminated so freely during the old Manchester exhibition, is simply a reduction in black and white of the highly coloured scene upon the banner, and is not truly representative. There is another and much superior picture of Peter Lew extant, an engraving of which was published with the following dedication, to Henry Hunt, Esquire, as chairman of the meeting assembled on St. Peter's Field, Manchester, on the 16th of August, 1819, and to the female reformers of Manchester and the adjacent towns, who were exposed to and suffered from the wanton and furious attack made on them by that brutal armed force, the Manchester and Cheshire Yeoman Cavalry. This plate is dedicated by their fellow labourer, Richard Carlyle, published August 1st, 18, indistinct, by Richard Carlyle, 53 Fleet Street, London. Of this, which is evidently a faithful representation of the awful scene, I have been most anxious to preserve a copy here, and only relinquish my proposal with extreme reluctance on my publisher's assurance that the fine lines of the old photograph possessed by Mr. Fitton are too faint for reproduction by modern processes. No artist's signature is distinguishable, yet it is, with scarcely a doubt, a facsimile of the oil painting by Mr. Thomas Waite, and formerly in the possession of his nephew, Mr. Frederick A. Waite, of Bridge Street, whose pictures were unfortunately dispersed nearly a dozen years ago, and all clue to its whereabouts lost. 
wherever it may be, it is a picture of historic value and should belong to the city. It is no fancy sketch. It has certainly been painted by an eyewitness who mastered all the details upon the spot, and the brothers Henry and Thomas Waite, with a brother-in-law named Richardson, were all upon the field as adherents of the cause of radical reform, and of Henry Hunt as its exponent. According to Bradley, the artist, Thomas Waite was the best portrait painter in Manchester, and that the principal individuals, in even the faint photo, are portraits, any old inhabitant of the town might testify, as I can. Not only may the clerical magistrate at the open window on the left be readily identified, but Henry Hunt and his supporters upon the wagon platform, with horror depicted in every feature. The whole scene is realistic, from the lady sabred in the barouche, to the panic-stricken fugitives trampling on their fallen fellows, regardless of all but the instincts of self-preservation, husbands dragging at their wives, women clasping their babes, the wounded lying unheeded underfoot, the deserted child imploring mercy from the mounted barbarian about to smite, the meagre, half-famished man turning in his flight to clench his fist and curse the slashing cavalry. It has all the impress of truth. The uniforms are as real as their reckless wearers, and there can be no mistaking the multitude for anything but Lancashire operatives of all grades, clad after the manner of the period, as fortune or misfortune had the upper hand. This is really the picture of Peterloo, and I am truly sorry no reproduction can be offered to my readers of an historic relic of so much interest. I am equally sorry that a portrait of Mrs. Broadbent, also by Thomas Waite, could not be given, being also lost. Chapter 19. The Star Inn. This inn, which obtained so much notoriety from its connection with Peterloo, was then the principal coaching house at the Deansgate end of the town, and the Star Inn yard was, like the Bridgewater, noted for its capacity to accommodate horses and vehicles without count. At that time it was not altogether detached. Across what is now an open street, an arched roof extended from the side door of the inn to the dingy brick wall of Bridge Street Market, or Shambles, and this, which was called the Arcade, formed the covered way to the stabling in the rear. The market, which has disappeared, might be commodious within, but it was enclosed in as unlovely a wall of brickwork as ever disgraced a town. Each alley of the square market had a separate entrance about the width of a respectable doorway, and as if to prevent the intrusion of any four-footed beast larger than a sheep-dog, an iron post was set up under each archway, so that a buyer of robust proportions would need to rest her basket on the post to obtain an entrance. But no doubt the market brought country customers to the Star Inn and the inn-yard, long before it aspired to rank as the Star Hotel. The arcade had vanished before my day. Chapter 16, etc. The Assembly Rooms The original shareholders, with a desire to render these rooms exclusive and aristocratic, laid down a law that no tradesman or manufacturer, whatever might be his wealth, should obtain admission under the charmed roof. Any puppy in uniform, any member of one of the three black-coated learned professions, was eligible and the ladies they might present, but their lordships ignored trade. 
and so long as private gentry, with or without titles, resided within the town or in the immediate suburbs, the law was strictly kept. But as the town advanced and a new type of manufacturers came to the front, the stringent rule which threatened the assembly rooms with dissolution had to be modified. Otherwise neither the Aspinalls nor the Ashtons could have penetrated the exclusive circle. Chapter 39 Alinda, or The Child of Mystery This was one of four novels written by Sophia McGibbon, the actress, a great favourite on the Manchester boards. She was the daughter of Woodfall, the reporter to the House of Commons, and the printer of the Letters of Junius. At that time, parliamentary reporters were not permitted to take notes, yet Woodfall's newspaper, The Advertiser, was sure to have verbatim reports of the speeches on the morning after a debate. The secret was this. His daughter Sophia, then only about thirteen, sat up waiting for him until whatever hour the house closed. Then, with a flying pen, she set down the speeches as they fell verbatim from his lips, and copy was ready for the printer. It was this faculty procured him the sobriquet of memory woodfall. As with most fluent writers, his penmanship was execrable. Chapter 46. Barlow Hall. By the kind intervention of Mr. Thomas Leatherbrow, and the gracious permission of Sir William Cunliffe Brooks, I am enabled, for the first time, to name, and to present views of the old hall at Fallowfield, in which those incidents in Augusta Ashton's married life, which formed the original basis of my novel, absolutely took place. As I named to Mr. Leatherbrow, the real prototype of Aspinall, there was no difficulty in identifying his home, and to both the former gentlemen my thanks are due. Chapter 23. Clogs. I find that much misapprehension exists respecting the Lancashire clogs, and that they are confounded in the popular mind with the sabots, or wooden shoon of France and Holland. They differ in this respect. The sabots are entirely of wood. Of the clogs, only the thick soles are of wood, to which stout upper leathers are closely nailed around. Chapter 46 the Irwell at New Bailey Bridge. This was the scene of the fatal launch of the Emma. On the right of Mr. Fitton's sketch is the new quay, where the flat or barge was built. On the left is the old towing path. A long steep flight of steps clinging to the higher embankment, below the visible railings, and guarded by such another handrail, gave access to this path, and served passengers going to and from the Warrington and Runcorn packet boats, which there found a landing stage. They were something like elongated and flat-topped Noah's Arks, the flat roofs serving for outside passengers, as on our present tramcars and omnibuses. The houseboat is a glorified imitation. Samuel Bamford has said, Venice hath its bridge of sighs, Manchester hath its bridge of tears. And this is appropriately so named, not merely on account of the Emma catastrophe, but on account of the numbers who had crossed it on their way to the prison, frowning down upon the stream, crossed it to their doom. For when it was built, the death penalty was exacted for very light offences. Chapter 4. Long Millgate and Clegg's Yard. There is a shadowy suggestion of a factory at the right of Mr. Fitton's picture, which locates the old houses, 
the factory looked up Hanover Street, and the entry to the yard I have assigned to Simon Clegg was there when I was a girl in my teens. But by that time the two houses nearest the entry had given place to others less tumble down, though the yard and the narrow tunnel which gave access to it were still in evidence, and the old tripe dealer did a busy trade among his cool stone tanks. Chapter 40 The Marketplace and Exchange there has been such a wholesale destruction of ancient houses and thoroughfares, and an opening out of more imposing new ones in the centre of what is now the city of Manchester, that I fear, but for the foot of Market Street Lane coming into Mr. Fitton's picture, readers of the present generation will scarcely be able to locate or realise it without reference to a map. Yet here for centuries had been the principal market of the town, spreading its open stalls down narrow smithy door on the left and short millgate on the right as far as the obscurely covered in poultry mart and shambles and here in the last century when the stocks and pillory were institutions as venerable as the market cross beside them there stood not the handsome circular fronted exchange here depicted but a small erection more like a country market hall than the commercial building it professed to be whereon were spiked the decapitated heads of three Manchester Jacobites to overawe their fellow townsmen. In 1792, this first exchange, having been abandoned and become a foul lazaretto, was taken down, and its site remained unoccupied, save by a stone pillar and posts. The fine circular-fronted exchange was quite a new erection, when Jabez, with Ben Travis as companion, went his errand to Harrop, the printers, next door to the post-office, which had not yet been removed to the back of the new exchange. The stocks, pillory and cross were still in situ, and I had hoped Mr. Fitton might have included them in his picture, had the same courtesy been extended in this direction which we found elsewhere. But now the market has been shifted, and even the second exchange, notwithstanding its extension towards St. Anne's Square, is itself a thing of the past. So far forgotten, that a writer in the Queen's Jubilee year ignored its existence altogether and accredited the scenic representation of the first exchange in the Old Manchester Exhibition as that of the only predecessor of the immense pile where merchants most do congregate in this day, which presents its frontage to Cross Street, takes a long slice out of Market Street and rejoices in being the exchange of a great city and seaport, not a mere town. Chapters 10, 40, etc. George Pilkington I cannot close this historical and topographical appendix without a few words anent the genial old acquaintance of my girlhood. I used to meet him at the house of intimate friends before I had any foreshadowing of my career as a novelist, or any inkling of the great good there was in the man it was my proud privilege to chat with so pleasantly. Indeed, I had introduced him into my novel, simply as a blue-coat boy, before I knew how modestly, yet how effectively, he had testified his gratitude to his benefactor, Humphrey Chetham, to whose foundation he was indebted for the training which had paved his way to fortune. A grateful and a generous heart only could have prompted such an expression of reverence for his alma mater, as he has stamped in marble and placed in the sacred house of God, where he, the blue-coat boy, sang and worshipped with his schoolmates. There was no monument to the far-seeing liberal merchant, 
until George Pilkington raised to his memory, and that of his foundation, the statue of which an engraving is here presented, and did it without any parade of his own name whatsoever. This book may pass to readers who have never entered our city or its cathedral, so I think I do well to preserve the memory of one blue-coat boy, one true Manchester man, who combined the three virtues of gratitude, modesty, and generosity. And lest I should be deemed wanting in the first of these attributes, I hasten to thank all those who in any way have furthered my endeavours to preserve an historical picture of the Manchester which existed when I was young, but which has passed away from the sight and memory of the present generation. Of these I can only name gratefully Sir William Cunliffe Brooks, Mr. Walter T. Brown, Mr. John Lee, Mr. Thomas Leatherbrow, Mr. Albert Nicholson, Mr. Charles Sutton, librarian, and his brother, Mr. Albert Sutton, Mr. Clarence Waite, P.R.C.A., and his nephew, Mr. Herbert Waite. Isabella Banks, London, November 14th, 1896. End of the Manchester Man by Mrs. G. Linnaeus Banks Read by Phil Benson